Hi, this is Girlboss Radio from Panoply. I'm Sophia Emmerusso, founder of Nasty Gal and the author of Girlboss. This week we're actually recording in the Slate offices in New York, which is really cool. Did not plan on being in New York, but this really worked out. Got to meet the team here for the first time, and it's it's really cold. It's cold in New York. Anyway, every week I talk to a different woman who's super inspiring, whose work I love, who I may or may not know, who I will know better by the end of the episode, and you will too, to find out how they got their start and extract tidbits from their successes. And today's guest is Kay Cannon. But first, I'm here with my friend Liz Carey, who's funny, cute, I don't know, weird, just my stupid friend to kick off the episode with me and talk about our week stuff maybe some philosophy her pet gecko and girl boss moments which is this new thing that you can participate in the show with so send me your hashtag girl boss moments via twitter or instagram on my instagram or twitter on girl boss's instagram or twitter who knows if you hashtag girl boss moment i'll be able to find it and we'll read some of our of our listeners' girl boss moments each week on the podcast. Hey, Liz. Hey, Sophia. <laughs> um, it's like a <laughs> phone call. It's actually, we're FaceTiming with the sound off. What time is it there? I have no idea. It's, it's like apparently 10. rush hour time for everybody in their pretend jobs. Oh. Um, I work four pretend jobs, for the record. <laughs> what are they, Liz? My pretend jobs? Yeah. I'm a, well, I think we all know I'm a model on the radio. Uh-huh. Um, You're my backup model. Comedian, backup model. Comedian in my bathroom. Uh-huh. Stylist for myself. Aspiring stylist for myself. And... Um, dot com. A, dot com. And I take, <laughs> care of a, I take care of a crested gecko lizard. Oh. I don't want to brag, but yeah. <laughs> What's its name? Pokey. Wow. Cool. Yeah. So, you know. So I'm in New York. I'm going to tell you the long story about why I'm in New York. And the funny thing is that Liz warned me about this whole trip I took to Miami. And so basically a bunch of people got flew out to Miami for like a special people retreat type thing, conference. And it was on a cruise ship. This was like three full days of programming aboard a cruise ship with speakers. And there were some great speakers. The really great speakers came on the boat Friday before it left the port, spoke and got the fuck off before the thing left. But I got on the boat and my room had no window. Mm. The bed was like inches away from the walls. Like if I had rolled over, like rolled off the bed, I probably, the wall would have caught me, you know? It's like a hotel in Japan. And so getting into the bathroom was, and I've never been claustrophobic. The bathroom was like a like the shower was like a a small coffin inside of a slightly larger coffin ins- inside of like a like a slightly larger coffin which was my room Didn't inside you just of a get boat that tattoo what shut Didn't up you just get that new tattoo a tattoo of a coffin inside of a coffin inside a matryoshka inside of a coffin coffin mm-hmm. no is that what those okay. are called carry on so i got on the boat and it was basically like my personal hell it was like a frat party in <clears> vegas <throat> in an enclosed space with no cell service. So I went on this thing to be around people that I knew and maybe meet some other people, but their whole thing is like, we want you to bump into people you don't know and meet them. So it was like pawing around like a socially dark room, 
like feeling around in the dark. It was so crowded. Sounds so fun. It was like, it was really scary. So I couldn't find the people that I actually wanted to see. So I figured, I don't know. There was no place to go be alone. Like the pool was covered up. They had a stage on it. Like there was no place to just like be alone for the next three days, which for me is just really important that I can have a space that's my own to retreat to if I don't feel social or if I'm having a moment. And that room made me like hyperventilate and almost vomit. So I got off. I got off the boat before it left the dock and then then had a staycation weekend in Miami, which was fun, except I missed my flight on Monday night or on Sunday night, which meant that there were no other flights left Sunday night. So I would have to fly home on Monday, but Monday was going to be when all the people got off that boat and were Mm. flying home. So I was like the speaker. I mean, there was like over 100 speakers and I wasn't getting paid. It was just like, why not? I'll I'll give this a shot. So I never bail on stuff. I'm really not a flake. I had to get off for my own sanity. And so the thought of being trapped on a plane with the people that Mm -hmm. I then had flaked on who like had stories about the weekend seemed like really terrifying. So I... And I didn't want to go back to a hotel in Miami and get on a plane the next morning anyway. So I was like, get me Mm-mm. to New York. Yeah. So I flew to New York with like, you know, tropical gear. Again. And it's fucking cold here. And now I'm here till like Sunday because I have a wedding. I was going to be back anyway. I have a wedding here on Saturday. So and the big lesson is like, don't I don't know. Don't be social. Or what's the what's the lesson, Liz? A, when you're traveling, I feel like with you. A sidebar lesson is always bring a winter coat because you keep ending up in New York with a bikini and a sarong. (laughs) I think we are, we're at a crossroads. I say yes to all my invites and then research more thoroughly. I think that you should have listened to my advice, but you did not. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is like I'm in New York now. It's been, I can't remember the last time I was in New York without a schedule of back-to-back-to-back-to-back meetings because you can get so much done here. So I usually have... I should be there with you. usually have between eight and ten meetings in a day, and they're booked like weeks in advance, and I'm just running around. And if I have time for friends, I'm squeezing them into like an hour of whatever time I have or a drink, you know, a drink before a dinner that I already have scheduled. And so yesterday, or maybe it was two days, it was two days ago, um... I found myself walking around Soho with a friend for like three hours. So fun. And stopped. She I? works at a burger place called Superiority Burger. That's these like amazing. I know that place. Amazing vegan burgers. And saw her like in action, had two of them. They're so good. And just like right. found oh, myself wow. in New York, like exploring and meandering the streets at this beautiful time of year for the first time since I was probably mm-hmm. 20 years old. And that an imp- was like that in contrast to being shoved on a boat with people that may or may not be important for my future or like, I don't even know. It's just like, it felt nostalgic walking around New York with my friend. And in my life, it's, it feels like my friendships become just another thing on my calendar. Dinner with my friend, you know, brunch with my friend. And so what you really need is time to just kind of be with people. And sometimes that means traveling with them. Sometimes that means just like being and not having like some crazy agenda because at the end of the day what it feels like and the real lesson here is that if I don't take time to really enjoy myself and the people with me well yeah I'll collapse but also 
what everything is reduced to, even the great things, the successes, my relationship, my friendships, what it becomes is a thing on my calendar shoved between another yeah. thing and another thing. And none of them none of them is more valuable than any other. And that's not cool to anyone involved. Um, no, every time you read an article about anybody crazy successful or whatever, the one thing whenever they say what you know, what would you what's your If you could have anything in the world, what do you wish for? And I think always the same answer is time, Mm -hmm. free time. More hours in the day. You've had some experiences lately, though, huh? I'm having a four-month cycle that is like PMS where a lot of my girlfriends, a a lot of my long relationships have taken an interesting turn. And I've really – I'm examining why – girls are so we're we're really hard on each other and i was you know we're always picking on guys for you know hanging around and and picking their nose in cargo shorts but the one thing they won't engage in typically is petty gossip it's funny yeah i mean it's just as i've experienced or witnessed just as like you know your friend and an outsider it's just a muscle that we have to like tune constantly that is the you know, don't put it in a text. Pick up the phone. Text is the worst. Assume that, you know, don't assume the worst. Um, give people the benefit of the doubt. I think I would really rather have two amazing friends than, you know, 16 gossipy My Little Ponies. <laughs> it's almost like having a boyfriend, you know. A, a breakup with a girl is really intense, and I've never experienced this in my life. And I was saying to Sophia, this is a really Sweet. new... It's a really new feeling, and you're like, You wow. haven't really had falling outs? I've had little falling falling outs. I think we all scrap with our friends, but I'm going through something where it's like, I found a shirt of hers the other day, and it was almost like when you have that boyfriend, you, you find like something of his, and you're like, oh, it smells <laughs> like him. Or, you know, it's really, female relationships are super intense. It's, you know, it's like your 20s, you just, you're in a place where you're just bumping into people and you're all in the same place and you're all kind of in the same place in your lives for the most part. Some people have jobs and some people are in school, but, you know, you're, there's, the disparity isn't like as, as great as it is with, I mean, there are people in their 20s that have kids. I, you know, in LA and New York, I think there's less of us. And I just feel like as I've entered my early 30s, it's like, I have, you know, my best friends in grad school, and then I have another friend who has a two-year-old. Everyone's in very different places. Like, it's so different. Yeah. So, last week we launched this, launched, I mean, everything's launched. You do it for the first time, it's launched. Whatever, we did our girl boss moments, and you talked about your girl boss moment of the week, which was what? Making sandwiches. Making sandwiches (laughs) for your kid, which is super cool. I can't even get myself out of the house. I don't know what it's going to be like if I'm ever responsible You'll for some else. And mine was try- figuring out how to respond to everyone who writes girl boss or writes me because I'm still not good at it. <clears throat> and that was my girl boss moment because I made the effort. I still haven't figured it out. But I think making an effort can be a girl boss moment too. Um, but what I want is in- to include our listeners. Um, I want... You guys to tweet your girl boss moments and comment on my Instagram and on the girl boss Instagram. Hell, do it on Liz's Instagram. It's the Liz Carey. And on Twitter, wherever I am, Facebook, it's not that hard to find me. What's your hashtag girl boss moment of the week? Each week, you know, give yourself some credit. We're all doing something to better ourselves and our lives and our careers and be stronger and more daring in 
the choices we make. So I want that from you guys, whoever's out there listening. I'm here. And while thanks, Liz. You and your gecko? Mm-hmm. Lizard. So while we're at it, Liz, what's your girl boss moment of the week? You know, I was thinking on the drive over here, I, I really didn't have a girl boss moment. And then I thought, wait a minute. You had a huge girl boss moment because I finished writing my script and it's starting to go out to people for sale. <laughs> and I guess my I set such crazy high expectations for myself, I didn't include it as a girl boss moment because it's something that's not done yet. But it's still a huge girl boss moment for me for having completed it and I still managed to make pancakes too. That's so. pretty cool. What was yours? My girl boss moment was adding up all the days I traveled over the last year mm. and realizing that it's like 30% of my time is spent traveling, whether for business or personal, which for some people is really normal. And for me, it makes me really out of sorts. And I eat random food and I don't exercise. And I just don't really, you know, it's for someone who who really doesn't love routines and wasn't built for a nine to five. I crave routine and I crave consistency. Yeah. And I think I'm going to be very adamant next year about how much I travel and what I travel for and what I say yes to. Because saying yes, you know, I've I've said before that it's it's a really powerful thing and I've met such amazing people by by agreeing to go to a dinner or whatever it is and you know, it's like it's a lot of people to to keep up with or stay in touch with, which I like to do because I really enjoy these people. And then I have my few very close friends and my family, and it's it's just such a hard balance. So I think it's I think it's just being more deliberate in what goes on my calendar, and especially what takes me out of town. And all I, all of that is upsetting to me. And I also have one concern with you saying no to engagements. It means a lot less karaoke. It does. Because what happens is I'll go to a dinner, some business dinner, and it's only 8 p.m. And I get out and I'm like, Liz, Liz, I had two drinks. Let's go get karaoke. Karaoke. I've only, I had only karaoke. Is that, is that the plural form of karaoke? Uh, (laughs) I had only karaoke. Was there an apostrophe in there? (laughs) I had only karaoke um, (laughs) prior to meeting Sophia twice. Once was a blind date, which I thought was a pretty bold move. This girl will karaoke anywhere, anytime, any place. In a private Meetings room. done, karaoke. Yeah. Liz, I'm just kidding. This was fun. Thank you. I'd jump off a bridge for you, lady. Oh, I'd pick my nose for you. Just kidding. I'd oh, do it I'd anyway. eat your boogers. <laughs> oh, whoa. Come home soon. I will. I will. The interwebs are, this is too much, too weird, too much technology. I'll FaceTime you. Okay. Thanks, Liz. Okay, guys, enough of that. Let's get started. Kay Cannon is one of the funniest ladies in comedy today. She was a writer-producer on the hilarious show 30 Rock and co-executive producer on New Girl. She wrote the screenplays for both Pitch Perfect and Pitch Perfect 2. Hey, Kay, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, (laughs) this is super fun. How did we meet? We have a mutual friend who put us together. Yeah. And I had just read your book, Hashtag Girl Boss, in case you're wondering. And <laughs> I, I have never been more nervous for a meeting ever. With me? Yeah. I think, That's and so funny. I know that might sound strange because I've 
been in meetings with people where like, they look so, like such a bitch on the cover. No, no. You know what it was? It was like, cause I've, I'm so used to being in meetings where people are older than me and I'm trying to attain something. Like in this situation, I'm older than you and I had just finished reading your book where you're like, do this, do that. Don't be late. <laughs> yeah. And I was Listen, like, girl, boss. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I kind of was like, oh, I got there so early. I didn't know what to wear. I was just I had my late? kid. Was I super late? You were actually quite late, but I think I was, but, but I had like just had my daughter. And so picking out what to wear with somebody who has so much style as you have was okay, daunting to me. It's really funny. I but go into nice. meetings with people and they're like, I thought a lot about it. I was going to wear this meeting, you know, like business meetings uh-huh. or whatever. And it's just like, I don't walk into a room and like size people up. Well, I know that now but at the yeah. time you know <laughs> you don't know like yeah. fashion's weird and there's probably a lot of people like that yeah so. <laughs> i left there thinking i really like her i me too so you have six other siblings i do i'm the That's fifth of seven amazing you grew up in the midwest what was that like and you were pretty athletic right yeah my whole family was we were was kind of encouraged my dad he passed away almost three years ago now but he was very competitive and in that healthy, competitive yeah. way, and which I think has really served me in my career now and stuff. Well, we're from a small town, so like we made up most of the teams, yeah, <laughs> my family. But it was great. It was like it was a great way to spend time in a small town where you have literally nothing to do. Yeah, we were like, and I grew up like in the forest, like running around with no shoes on and holding an axe. <laughs> like sounds really magical and, and terrifying, <laughs> actually. <laughs> I joke in writers' rooms that I'm a dirt bag, essentially. Like that, uh-huh. yeah, I just grew up like <laughs> like there's still some girl. dirt in there. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of dirt in there. And so <laughs> having so many siblings and then playing sports, you know, there's an amount of teamwork mm-hmm. that it takes to exist in a large family and to be an athlete. How do you take that into what you do today? And you've hired writers, you've mm-hmm. run writers' rooms, you work in your early life. It's helped me so it's, much because even the, a writer's room is like 10 to 12 writers. Sometimes the room is smaller than that. And for me to be the fifth of seven kids and to have been on so many teams as I've been on, the writer's room is a team. And so what I think I'm good at is understanding what role I play every day on that team. Yeah. And it was explained to me early on, and I, I always think about this, a day in the life of a writer of a sitcom especially is like 10 to 12 people going to dinner every day uh-huh. for 12 to 14 hours a day yeah. and having the same conversation. And you need to know where you fit in that conversation. Yeah. And so some days I would be the boss of that room and some days I had to know to shut my mouth and sit back and you're like the host, but then you're the date who doesn't yeah, know anyone. Yeah, and sometimes I'm, you, you got to be the problem fixer, you know, yeah. or f- solver. And the writers who struggle with that process lack the self awareness to know what role they serve. Yeah, in the room. And so I get to see. I'm also like kind of the middle child of all these kids. So I'm always constantly like, everybody okay? You good? You got a good energy? <laughs> like, yeah. Everybody happy here? Yeah, no or, weirdness. And I can just sense like have this acute awareness of like when people aren't. Yeah. Not happy or upset or feel like they're not being heard in the room. So do I, to the point yeah. of like making things up. And someone's just like, I don't feel good today. And you're like, really? Are you sure you're not upset with me? <laughs> I'm like, you didn't put an exclamation in your text. Are so you, are you not are happy you, about Are you mad? What is, what's that period about? Are you lacking excitement about that? I don't get it. When you are running a writer's room, how do you make these people great? And how do you make them great as a team? I think you always want to make sure that everybody's heard. 
And I know that seems like such a small thing, but quite frankly, I've talked to a lot of That's a hard thing. Women. How do you do that? Yeah. Well, again, it's like understanding the dynamic and it's just like acknowledging everyone's idea. Yeah. Sometimes I have noticed sometimes like ladies aren't heard in the room. Uh-huh. And is um, it mostly guys in there? Generally. At New Girl, it was kind of close to being even. And at 30 Rock, it was mostly guys until the later seasons. Do you think guys are funnier than girls? No That's way. That's not a real question. <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you look at me so I, seriously. I'm I, sorry. No, I'm sorry. I, I, that question is, is often Do asked. people actually ask that? Yeah. That's so crazy. Or no, it's more the question of like, are women funny? And is you're, that really and you're just a question? Like, you're like, uh, no, they're just totally we just serious. Made, we, we just have made no ourselves laugh. <laughs> 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 no one else is laughing. It's like, that's all it takes. You just make one <laughs> yeah. person laugh. Yeah. Okay, let's back up. How did you get into comedy? Did you know you wanted to be in comedy? I, early on, would do sketches and stuff like that when I was a little kid. And I was the runt of the family, so I had to, I was like loud and like, look at me, look at me. How can I be seen and heard? And Are you short? Compared to the rest of my oh. family, yeah. Like my younger brother, Luke, is like 6'2 or something. And How he, tall are you? I'm 5'4 and 3 fours. But then I, in college, I started an improv group and I knew, I went and saw a Second City show, my first Second City show in Chicago. And in that show was Rachel Dratch, who was hilarious, and Stephanie Weir, who was on Mad TV for years and has done a lot of acting and writing. And Kevin Dorff, who wrote for Conan O'Brien for several years. It was just a great show. And I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. And I was, at the time, I was in grad school to get a master's in teaching and education, which I've never used. You Except finished it? Oh, yeah. You have a master's? I do. I know. That's amazing. But like, I didn't really that's okay. actually use it. It's okay. Except there's teaching wasted outside effort, of the classroom. Wasted effort does something. You just don't know what until you look back. Yeah. I mean, I was such a school wasted, person, which I know you, you are, were not a school person. I want to be. I that's where we're very different is I was like, I would cry if I had to miss school. If I had a cold, I would try to hide my coughs. I'm like, so. <laughs> you're like, get um, me out of here. Nay, nay. <laughs> Before I went to grad school, I would acted for like a year post-college, and then I didn't get a job for six months or something, and I got really nervous, and so I went back to school. That's a long time. How'd you pay your rent? I waited tables. Where? A place called Bud's Place. It's a sports bar. And the time. Macaroni Grill. I waited tables at Macaroni Grill. Oh, cool. I'm sorry. I waited tables at Macaroni Grill, in case you want to get that again clean. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Applebee's. <laughs> Applebee's. <laughs> a macaroni Grill. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and then anyway, I started, I, take, I started taking class at Second City. And then I became buddies over the years with Tina Fey, of all people. Cool. So you met Tina Fey? Yeah, I met Tina. I used to be married to Jason Sudeikis and... He and I were both doing Second City, and he knew Tina and Jeff Richmond, Tina's husband. Because when I started taking classes at Second City, Tina was already gone. And Jeff, I think, was almost already gone, too. She had already gone to uh, New York, where she was working at, as a writer at Saturday Night Live. So we first met each other on New Year's Eve, actually. We had, like, a double date. Yeah, and, and we just connected and became friends. And then over the years, you know, that was, it was probably, like, six years later or something. Yeah. 30 Rock happened. Yeah. And I was performing and doing all that kind of stuff. And I started writing for myself because I wasn't getting acting roles. And yeah. how long did you write on 30 Rock? Six seasons. So six That's years. Amazing. 
of the seven. How did your role change over the course of those six years? And then what did you learn by just sticking it out for six effing years? I learned so much from that show. It was such an education that then I've been able to apply to anything else I do after it. The first year I was a staff writer, I remember feeling I was so happy to be there and I was so happy to have a job. But the whole first season, just this like inside conversation with myself of just like, can you believe you're here? Yeah. You're getting paid. I remember every time I deposited a check into my bank, I was like, I made another week without getting fired. I'm so happy. I felt like I've I've learned how to tell a story Yeah, in terms of the sitcom, how you do that. And I got so much better at writing jokes. And uh, how do you compose a good joke? I mean, there, I didn't understand like joke structure. I just knew like things that made me laugh. And, yeah. um, and so like I farts. just, <laughs> I mean, I personally always think farts are funny. You do? Cool. Yeah. All you have to do is make a fart noise with your mouth and <coughs> I'm laughing. My secret trick on photo shoots is to have someone behind the photographer make a fart noise. And that's the only way to get a, gen- you to get, like, get a, a natural genuine look. smile out of me like so fast. Uh-huh. And then I try to hold it as long as I can. And it starts to melt and then someone has to. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, back to you. So six years at 30 Rock. It was such a good show. It was the best. I would have stayed all seven seasons, but I left New York for love. Oh. I met my now husband. and Yeah. He's amazing. He seems like a keeper. Oh, he's the best. And you have a baby. Yeah, I have well, a two-year-old. She's well, two toddler. now. It's crazy. I've known you that long. I know, you, right? You like, just had a baby? I just had her, yeah. Man. I had her like Somebody needs to hurry Five up. months earlier <laughs> or something. <laughs> We're already lifers. Um, <laughs> so what has being a mom taught you? How long did you take off? And what's being a working mom like? Well, I really didn't take off. I was writing on New Girl. I, so I did one full season of New Girl, got pregnant, and then came back, and then was maybe there for seven episodes of the third season, and then went and had my daughter, and then I was on maternity leave. But I'd sold a pilot to CBS, and... I was writing Pitch Perfect 2. So I never stopped. I remember sending an email to the producers of the pilot that I had sold to CBS about the story or something and then going into labor. Like my water broke like a half an hour. I was like, well, if I'm in labor tomorrow, then we won't meet. But if I'm not in labor, let's meet. Let's talk about it or uh-huh. whatever. And like sent that email and then like went and used the bathroom. I was like, oh, my, my water broke. And, <laughs> and Clear um, my calendar. <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> and then I s- turned in like an outline two weeks after getting birth. Wow. I don't recommend that for everybody. That's sort of my mentality. I didn't want to feel like I had taken a break. It was super hard. But if I, you know, have a second, I hope we do, it would be the same thing. Yeah. I just would keep you going. You can also write from home a little bit. Well, that's the thing. You know, the biggest change that I made was I didn't go back to I, – I went back to a show – but I only went two days a week. Yeah, I'm not saying this for everyone, but for me, I really wanted to have a kid, and I didn't want to miss anything. Yeah, that's not you know. It sounds like you've like everybody. the winning, like working mom, stay at home mom kind of hybrid. Well, yeah, now because thankfully I have this you know screenwriting career. Yeah, and that's like been awesome. How did Pitch Perfect come about? Yeah, it kind of had this interesting, it evolved in this interesting way because coming from the Midwest, I knew nothing about acapella groups. We didn't really have them. And so I, in the first season of 30 Rock, the character of Tufer, played by Keith Powell, there was a joke in the script that was like, he went to Harvard and he was on an acapella group at Harvard. And I thought it was a made up thing. And even to the, the name, I mean, I think they did make up the name of the group that he was on. 
but Robert Carlock, who was my boss, I turned to him and I was like, oh, who who wrote that? That's so funny. That's so funny to me. And Robert was like, no, that's a real thing. Like, especially in the East Coast, it's like colleges. There's crazy, it's very popular, and they have competitions and stuff. And I was like, what? It's so waspy. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and Brett Bear, who was also a writer on Thirty Rock, and I turned to him and I said, somebody needs to write a movie about that because I thought that world was such a just like hearing that it was real must be like interesting. And he said back to me, well, there's your movie. Did you always want to write a movie? No, not necessarily. But I, you know, I started to think about it a little bit more when you're, st- you start to have any kind of success in writing, you start to go, okay, what else can I do? Totally. And so my lunch break on that day, I went and I got online to see different performances and stuff. And, but I, I didn't want to, re- my first screenplay to be something I didn't know anything about, which I didn't. I had hunches that it was probably like the improv community with music, but I wasn't for sure. I would pitch to like, Anybody who had listened to different producers, I was like, I want to write a movie about college acapella, but I don't know anything about it. So it was like nothing. It was like not really a pitch. I had that conversation with Elizabeth <laughs> Banks at a premiere of Spider-Man, I think three, that she was in and she invited me to. And so late at night at some club or whatever at the premiere party, I was like, I want to write a movie about acapella because she was like, ask me what I was up to. It's <laughs> a really cool conversation for the club. by the way. Exactly. And I think she forgot about that conversation, although I had been you know, pitching to anybody that I thought that this, I just thought that was such an interesting world, including my agents where I was like, Hey, what about like this? And, and there was already some movies that were already written in that world. But there was, I think there was one that's like sat on the shelf for years that had like Will Ferrell and Ben Stiller attached to, you know, as like an adult, like an adult acapella group or something. And then, so separate from all of that, two years later, Elizabeth Banks calls me. I was pitching her some other kind of movie idea that I thought she might like. And so I pitched it. And then she goes, hey, there's a book coming out that her husband found, Max Handelman, her producing partner, called Pitch Perfect, where Mickey Rapkin followed three or four groups around for a year and then wrote about it. Would you be interested in being the writer of this, like, we'll come up with a pitch together and then we'll go and we'll sell it to the studios and stuff. And I was like, uh, duh, I've only been talking about this friend for, yeah, for, for someone so who like years. forgot. I think she, I think that she, I think their thinking was like, That's who, cool. who would be good at writing this? Like, Kay loves to do karaoke. Let's go to her. Um, um do you? <laughs> I love it. We haven't done it yet. Oh my God. We have to. I, I'm on board. Are you a good I'm, singer? I'm okay. Can you I'm sing not right like now? amazing. No, I'm not going to sing right lollipop, now. Lollipop, lollipop. <laughs> No? Okay. <laughs> uh, sounded pretty good, right? <laughs> um, so, well, and then basically Liz and Max and myself, I remember flying to LA and we f- spent a weekend holed up together to try to come up with the story of Pitch Perfect. I read the book on the plane, right, to their Who's place. your studio? It was an interesting situation where there was another group that wanted the rights to the book. and Oh, hell no. <laughs> and so they, they split the studios up and they had, we went and pitched to six studios that we were given and Universal was one of those studios. And then this other group went and pitched to six or seven other studios and whoever got a sale got the rights to the book. I know whose pitch was perfect. Um, it believed it was. <laughs> I'm pointing at myself. This gal. Oh my God. Uh, this nasty gal. And yeah, like we sold, we sold it to two places, Universal and Weinstein and then Universal got it and. Here we are. So Pitch Perfect 2 broke records. What records did it break? Well, it's the biggest selling musical comedy of all time. Second 
would be School of Rock. Wow. And so we're the only musical comedy that's broken the 100 million mark domestically. Uh, yeah. And also Pitch Perfect 2 had female director, female screenwriter, at least 12 principal female roles. Was um, that important or did it just kind of wind up that way? It sort of wound up that way because in the first one, we had uh, Jason Moore directed the first one. So the only real difference is that Elizabeth Banks directed the second one. Yeah. So that was like the Who's got to be difference. a force. Yeah, she's she's a force. When she directed that film, it was kind of a coup for women in Hollywood. I mean, the whole thing is that it's a female-led comedy, but it seems like there's not a lot of female directors more specifically. Yeah, or there, there is, aren't. I think we're, we're in this wonderful movement where we're just seeing a lot more female-driven things just in general. Mm-hmm. The producers and the power people are still primarily male, mm-hmm. and that's what makes – the Pitch Perfect franchise so awesome in, in that I was a co-producer on the movie and Liz was a producer on the movie and us being ladies, like you need ladies to like be in that position to then hire female directors and mm-hmm. female writers that totally. are perfect for the job to give them their the shots. Critical mass of vaginas yeah. makes things happen. Yeah. Donna Langley, who is the head of Universal, like she's the one who ultimately said yes to us to having the movie be yeah. made. Have you dealt with any adversity with writing for primarily, you know, female like because you wrote for New Girl also mm-hmm. and you wrote Pitch Perfect. I mean, I know I remember when I was selling Girl Boss and meeting with different editors who would maybe, you know, want to take the book on. They were like, "We don't know if this girl like actually reads books." And it's just so funny that there's people out there that think they know your audience better than you right. do. That's crazy to me. Oh, totally. That's basically saying, like, we don't know if girls read. We don't know if your customer... And by the way, women read. ...reads (laughs) books or wants to read a book. They thought maybe the obvious choice would be, like, a coffee table, fashion-y, you know, how to put... How to mix prints or Mm -hmm. whatever, which is fine. Those books are great, but I will never make that book. Mm -hmm. So you told me a story about... You know, going out and pitching a show and having a guy tell you, like, that's there's no way that's Yeah, I mean, the business is set up that they have to deal with things I don't have to think about. You know, they think about advertisers. They think about the business model. And so I come in pitching a show that is primarily female from a female's point of view with a female title and the name. And I do this big pitch and, yeah. and this middle-aged guy and another man were like, that's great, but you got to make the show more for dudes and you can't name it the female-driven name. I was just like, what? How do you even make that <laughs> yeah. show? Yeah. Like, not- it just didn't seem right to me. And afterwards, the producing partner with me on this particular show, she said to me, well, what's important to you? I, I could have either made these changes or she was like straight up going like, what is it you're trying to say? And because if you think about it, like 30 Rock and New Girl, although they are created by women and primarily there's the lead that's female, the casts are male dominated. Like there are m- many more male characters in 30 Rock than there were female. Yeah. And there are many more male characters on New Girl than there are female. Uh-huh. But it's just the lead happened to be a woman and it was created by a woman. But like Pitch Perfect's kind of the, the first thing where I had like so many freedom women. Yeah. And and the reason I I'm so proud of the fact that we're like this did so well financially, domestically or whatever, is because that is to a tough genre to crack in general. A musical comedy. Yeah. yeah. Specifically a cappella. Exactly. Whoa. And yeah. so it's like if you write characters where 
you write them like adults who know yeah. what they're doing and yeah. saying and the feelings that they feel that are relatable to so many women. When women come out to buy things, they buy things like crazy. <laughs> yeah. And I think we're at a point with my book and, you know, the people who I met with who were like, I'm not, I don't know, you know, about if this is a good idea mm-hmm. or the guy that you're talking about or just anything that's happening. What's happening right now is a little bit of an if you build it, they will come. Yes. Like Pitch Perfect is not an anomaly. There have been many, many female-driven comedies that have done awesome, particularly in this year, Spy, Trainwreck. Like, mm-hmm. it's not an anomaly. Like, and, you know, I'm actually going to start directing. So cool. B- because I also, like, want to. Can you talk about that? I think I can talk about it. I mean, I have something in development that I'm attached to. Yeah. But I probably can't talk about the specifics of it yet until it's, like, announced, which I think it's going to be announced pretty soon. Cool. I'm anxious. And I'm with a group of people who who have seen something in me and are going to give me a shot. Yeah. Because I haven't directed anything, but I've spent thousands upon thousands of hours on set and yeah. and all that, and have been an actor and feel like I know how to get performances from actors and all, and I have a vision. Like I, when I write, I, I write with, uh, hopefully. What do you think, think makes a great vision. director? I'm so clueless. I think having like decisive ideas about what you want it to look like and feel like, and being a great communicator and. You know, bringing out the best in everybody. You're yeah. a leader. You're a leader who has to lead a crew and totally. and lead your actors and make everybody feel like they're being heard and important. And yeah, I think it's a really hard job, but uh, for sure, and I have great respect for it. And I'm I'm like I feel like, you know, I wasn't a writer. I was a performer, and I sort of jumped into writing. Uh-huh. And I had such a great respect for writers, and so I try. I just made it so that every day I was learning something and made it like, okay, I'm going to treat it like this is an education and I'm just going to totally do it and, I, and I'm going to work really crazy totally. hard. So no one can tell me I didn't work hard at the end of the day. Like I was just like asking for it. So that as a director, I feel the same way. It's like, I'm just going to work crazy hard. I think when you feel lucky to be somewhere and lucky that anyone wants you in the room and consider anything in education, that's when really great things happen. And that's when you can become really great at something. I agree. It's like a certain amount of humility. I mean, I've had many different roles in my own company. So mm-hmm. to be at some point a writer and then at another point a showrunner possibly and for you like a director, it's got to be so cool to have the vantage point of all the different people working on a film because regardless of whatever you end up doing, maybe you'll say, you know what, I just want to be a writer for the rest of my life mm-hmm. or, you know, directing is not for me or, or or maybe you'll just become a director for the rest of your life. Who knows? But to have been on the receiving end of having been a writer or to have to be on the receiving end of having been any of those things. Yeah, I think to have empathy for everybody so around you. So valuable. Yeah. And I think it's important for anyone leading to really know what it's like to do the job of, of the people around you. I totally agree. And then I also feel like if I can like give any kind of advice, I remember somebody saying to me, well, you should direct, like just putting that idea out. Or a friend of mine was like, well, writing's just ideas on paper. You know, like in my mind, I would immediately say to myself, well, no, you're not a writer. You don't know how to do that. Uh-huh. Uh, you're an actor, you're a performer that you know how to do. Even though I took tons of classes to learn how to improvise and then uh, teach it and like threw myself into it. Yeah. I felt like, oh, I could, I could kind of do that. So when directing came about, I was like, Oh, well, no. I mean, like, people go to school for that. It's like, no, no. Like, say yes. Say yeah. yes. You know, that whole, yeah. like, yes to life kind of thing. Totally. I think that's um, probably, I mean, the beauty of having been through improv training. Life is just one big improv, isn't it? 
when you improvise, one of the rules of improv is yes and. I say yes yeah. to your idea and I add to it. And you try not to deny people. So I know that sounds cheesy. And if anybody's listening who's an improviser, you're like, oh my gosh, that's so cheesy. But but it's, it has helped me so much in yeah. life to be like, no, oh, okay. Or your idea is interesting. How can I make that totally. idea better? And yeah. yeah, I've thought about taking improv classes. It just, would be so great. Yeah. If you take one, you just get to, you see who you are kind of as a person too. Yeah. It's a little bit like therapy and you're playing and you're having a good time. I've been tweeting mm-hmm. at girlboss at girlboss on Twitter. Um, hey, do you have any questions for our guest Kay Cannon or, you know, I want to include our listeners. And I got all these tweets that were like, what about hashtag Beth? B. Chloe, Betchlow. I'm like, what is that? It's not even a word. Um, <laughs> what yes, is it? I believe you uh, pronounce it Bechloe. At least that's how I would do it because Be it's Chloe. Becca and Chloe, the two characters played by Anna Kendrick and Brittany Snow in the Pitch Perfect franchise. And there are shippers out there who, who desperately want to see. Okay, what's a shipper? Uh, so that would be fans who want to see uh, a relationship. Oh, uh, shit. Between these two people. So, like at 30 Rock, there were shippers for Jack Donaghy and Liz Lemon. You know, like they wanted Alec Baldwin and Tina Fey's characters to get together. So, there were all these shippers of like, make it happen. And, or, you know, they would do their fan fiction and they, where they would get together and stuff. And yeah, so there is a, uh, considerable amount of fans who want to see Becca and Chloe get it on or, or have a relationship even more than just like anything physical. I think they want to see like a, a positive lesbian relationship between two main characters of a franchise. And I get questions every day, whether or not that's going to happen. And I say it's a, there's, it's a sizable group. I actually don't know how many it is. I is mean, there's it, a lot of people who watch the movie. And it's women. It's not all men having weird fantasies. It's no, no, like, no. It's women. It's women. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's definitely like coming from a really great place of just like, it would be so great to take this moment to like show this kind of relationship so that I don't, as a lesbian, uh, a young woman don't feel mm-hmm. bad about myself or, or beyond that, they just really think that it's there. They, they think that it's like a relationship that they, those two are actually in love with each other. Cause what happened in the first one, in the first movie, I had a scene where they were both, I'd written a scene where they were both naked in a shower. On the page, it wasn't nearly as sexual as it was shot. <laughs> And I give that all to Jason Moore, who directed it to make it seem like it was a little bit more sexual between the two ladies than it necessarily was. But that sort of started the ripple of like, oh, clearly these two are, you know, into each other. So for the second movie, I did actually put a moment in there to honor the shippers Uh um, where Becca and Chloe are in a tent next to each other really close where you're kind of like teasing that there might be a chance where they might get together or kiss uh-huh. or something, you know, to sort of add the suspense for the shippers. And then I'm writing the third one right now. And so there's a lot of fans who are saying, please make it happen. And is there a chance? All I will say is that no chance in hell. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I always think about the fans and I'm just going to tell the best story possible. And that, that that's, you know, I'm going to try to honor what the characters are going through at the time that they're going through them and try to tell the best story. Cool. Leave it at that. Cool. So have you ever had a mentor? Would you consider Tina Fey your mentor? I would. I wonder if you asked her if she said that she'd be my mentor, but she might be like my unwilling mentor in that she gave me my shot and she's been a very good friend and she hired me with when I had no experience. Hopefully it's because she believed in me, but then also like we work well together and 
you know, hopefully I was giving something back to her. Six years. I, I you gave go, her six years. Six years of my life. <laughs> um, what I learned from her was always by watching her and watching how she worked. And, and the fact of the matter is like she walks the walk. I, she just works so incredibly hard. And she puts in the time and she is so smart. People have often heard like, oh, Tina Fey's smart, Tina Fey's smart. That yeah. it's, it's, it's almost taken for granted. She's really, really smart and so quick and so funny and so talented at so many things. I'm like, okay, watching her and going like, oh, I won't be as good as she is at all these things. But what I've been able to glean from her and learn from her and absorb from her yeah. is it's not about being There's as so much good gratitude. as other people, though. You know, I was talking to my publicist recently, and I was like, I'm going to do a podcast. And, you know, I believe in everything that I'm doing, but I'm not. There's women out there that are talking about really serious issues. They are getting deep into feminism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for the record, I consider myself a feminist. And I was like... Am I smart enough? You know, I'm a role model, but I'm from Sacramento and I'm not to throw Sacramento under the bus, but I'm like, I'm not the academic girl to lead women. I have a different jam. And she was like, Sophia, do you, you do you. Yeah, yeah. That's what people want. Mm -hmm. And I was like, really, really? But I, you know, and, and then, but that's, that goes to like going back to Tina. It's like Tina does Tina. Like there's yeah. nobody who knows Tina better than Tina and what she puts out into the universe. And that is something I learned. Like I now know very specifically what I want to put out, what I care about, what I put this in quotes, my brand is like, I know totally. what I'm trying to say and what my voice is, yeah. which is very different than her voice. And that's okay. Even though there's crossover, but yeah. it's, you know, yeah. I felt like a good comparison oh, with myself and Tina was like, Oh, it's like, um, if I'm not working as hard as her, I want to get to a point where I'm working as hard as she is. Yeah. You know, like in that, in that kind of way where it was like, helps the drive. Totally. Like, I want this thing, you know. And what drives you? It used, I used to be like years ago, I was so competitive. I was just, I just had that like pit in my stomach that was like, I have to have things. And now I don't have that, but I have the like competitive with myself. I just want to be doing as much as I possibly can be doing for myself. I don't have a drive for money. I, I kind of grew up without money and I don't, I have a very like casual relationship with money. It doesn't consume me. So I really try to do things that are for me and the things that, that I like. And I'll tell you this. I went to uh, the premiere of what happens in Vegas like years ago, that oh, movie. Cool. Yes. Dana Fox wrote that movie in that row. I was in the same row as Dana and all of her friends came to support her. And when the opening of the movie was happening, you know, like people went crazy because it was like Cameron Diaz and Nash and Kutcher. So there were all these, like you could barely hear anything because they were just going nuts, the fans at the premiere. And then Dana's name came on as a screenwriter. And I turned to look and she was like leaning forward a little bit. It's like the light was on her face and she was smiling so bright and her, her friends were clapping for her and like they lost their minds. And she was just like, like I was watching her watch her work on yes. camera, on, you know, in front of with all this, this awesome like premiere. And that movie did really well. And I did remember thinking, I, I remember looking at her and going, I want that. I, I watched you feeling. have that. I remember watching that at the friends and family screening that you had where your when your family was there, which uh -huh. you mentioned, and it was just like, and you make a cameo in Pitch Perfect. <laughs> I do. So cute. And just to see your family and for you to 
you know, you introduced your family and thanked your family. And I was just like the whole time. It's just it was such a great night. I get to I get to use the weird old man whistle that my grandpa taught me and like in a, in a crowd. <laughs> Anytime I get to do that, I'm really happy. But Aww. it seemed like it's such a that's such a cool thing to watch. Okay. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for this having me. Really Sophia, this is so awesome. Yeah. All right. That was Girl Boss Radio. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. So please tune in. Our producer is Shara Morris. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Girlboss, on Instagram at Girlboss, and our email address is podcast at girlboss.com. Please tweet your questions to us. Next week's guest is Liz Goldwyn. You can find me, Sophia Amoruso, at Sophia Amoruso, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or anywhere social media happens. And if you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We're actually on Spotify. And don't forget to leave us a rating wherever you subscribe, but only if you like us. I'm Sophia Amoruso. We'll talk to you next week.